one of the Aborigines, Tinker, accused of the recent murder of Messrs. Campbell and Smith's hutkeeper, having been captured by the settlers, was slain in a struggle which took place between him and the two men who had him in custody. From today's stories, this is The Marks Murdered, a story of murder and mayhem told over several episodes by myself, Greg, and by Peter. If you haven't listened to this series from episode one, we suggest you stop listening now and go back to the very beginning. Also a warning, this series of podcasts discusses the murders of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. It contains the names of Aboriginal people who have died. Whilst quoting original historical material, this series also contains racist language, some language that would be seen as inappropriate today, and historical ideas that are offensive. Previously on The Mark's Murders, it's 1847, about 50 kilometres northwest of modern-day Gundawindi. One of the Aborigines, Tinker, accused of the recent murder of Messrs. Campbell and Smith's hutkeeper, having been captured by the settlers, was slain in a struggle which took place between him and the two men who had him in custody. Marks was a splendid shot, and the blacks were very much afraid of him. And, from information I obtained from the Bebo people, they had long been watching to kill him. The blacks, it appears, took away both the boy and the sheep, and upon search being made for them, the upper half of the boy's body was discovered, hanging among the branches of a tree. The lower portion of the body seems to have been carried away and has not yet been discovered. Young described Marx's frenzied response, calling him a hater of all Aboriginals, shooting every native in sight. Billy was looking about and found a gin concealed by the fence and he pulled her out. She escaped from his grasp and ran. Someone called out, shoot her. And the whole party fired at her and she fell by the slip panel. Martin then struck her once or twice on the head with a pistol he carried. The murder of Mark's son and the subsequent murder of Aboriginal people started in 1847 around modern day Gundawindi. We know the bare bones of the story from the personal reminiscences of John Watts an early squatter on the Darling Downs, and from other historical accounts. But these accounts don't provide any context as to why the murders occurred, what actually happened, and their aftermath. We want to tell the truth of what happened. In the previous episode, we discussed the murder of James Mark's son and possible motives for that murder. Seeking vengeance, James Mark put a gang of stockmen together and started killing Aboriginal people in the area. It was only after the murder of Botha on Umbercolly that Commissioner Bly got involved. He came to Umbercolly to investigate. Bly soon knew who the culprits were. He instructed his constables to arrest the gang while he returned to Warialda. But the intervention of the legal authorities didn't stop the killings. 
Why? What happened after Bly left Umber Colling? On the 2nd of September 1848, after several days of taking depositions and inspecting the body of Botha, Bly departed the McIntyre with one of the five prisoners from the Umber Collie murders, while his troopers remained behind to track down the remainder. That night, the night that Bly left, and before the troopers had arrested the others, the gang struck again. This happened at Augustus Morris's station. Morris wasn't present at the time, but he learned the details from Thomas Young. He's no relation to Jonathan Young, but was on the property. On September the 10th, Morris wrote to Bly and informed him that seven white men had been riding around the district killing harmless Aborigines, including two female shepherds, Isabella and Mary, and also Isabella's baby son, who were murdered on Morris's head station. Another boy had been shot, though not fatally, on the squatter's cattle station four miles from the head station. The murders took place late at night when the victims were asleep. Augustus Morris believed that the killer's intended victim was Isabella's husband, Pantaloon, who survived because he was away from the station. Bly subsequently concluded, and I quote, I have much reason to suspect that he, James Mark, and some of those now in custody were the others concerned in the murders now reported by Mr Morris. So how did Pantaloon respond to the murder of his wife? I'd assume he wouldn't be too happy. We can't know what was in Pantaloon's mind, but the murders continued. By this time, James Mark had realised that he no longer was safe on Gudar, with Bly's troopers and the Big and Bull warriors all after him. He decided to leave. A bullock team was arranged to remove his goods from Gudar to Yeoman Station at Bogabilla. The following is a newspaper report about the next incident. It happened just 12 days after the murder of Pantaloon's wife. I have yet a more painful and melancholy case to relate, and that is the murder of a man in the employment of Mrs Yeomans and Baldwin, who was known by the name of Scotchy. Upon the 14th of September, Scotchy was driving a team belonging to Mrs Y and B and employed in removing flour and stores from Mr Marks's station. George Harris was with Scotchy, armed for protection. They had not proceeded far on their journey when they were surrounded by a tribe of about 150 blacks and Harris's gun, having missed fire, the blacks set up a yell and speared Scotchy. Harris, who was on horseback, managed to get Scotchy up behind him and they decamped. But as they had no safety without returning to Mr. Marks's station, upon their return, they were again attacked and Scotchy murdered, his jaw being broken and 10 spears run through his body. The dray was completely stripped of 3,000 pounds of flour, tea, sugar, clothing and opossum cloaks. One of the bullocks was also killed, cut up and carried away. Mr Marks had the body of poor Scotchy buried after Mr Jonathan Young and others had been to witness the lamentable sight. His faithful dog kept close by the body and it was with difficulty the men could approach it. The owners of stations in this unhappy quarter are suffering more than ever and unless immediate and efficient protection be granted them, 
they must abandon their stations. Do we know if Pantaloon was responsible for the murder of Scotchy? No. We can suspect that he was involved, but there is no evidence. But I don't think by this stage it really mattered. The tit-for-tat murders continued. Why? What happened next? Before we move on, Margaret Young makes an interesting comment about the murder of Scotchy. She says... It was no longer safe for Mr Marks to remain. A bullock wagon was sent to collect him and his possessions. This wagon was waylaid by the natives, they drowning the bullocks and sinking the wagon in the river. Later, under strong police escort, he and his family were taken away. We know that there are many mistakes in Margaret's journal, but this little section implies two things. Firstly, that Mark's family was on Goudar. I assume that she means Mark's wife, Mary, and the daughter, Isabella, as well as the remaining son, William. Margaret says on a couple of occasions in her journal that she was the only white woman in the area. Yeah, that is a bit strange. I mean, you'd think that she would know for certain if there was other women around. Yeah. Secondly, Margaret says that James Mark got a police escort. This seems really odd, given that the police were supposed to be looking for him to arrest him. Perhaps the local constables had some sympathy for James Mark that was not shared by Commissioner Bly. Yeah, that is a bit odd, but I wonder too if they were just happy to get him out of the area and they'll remove the family first. So where were the next murders? On the 26th of October, seven white men struck again. This cannot have been all of Marx's original gang, as some were in custody in Warrialda, but the pattern was familiar. Three Aboriginal women and a boy were murdered on Morris's Canning Creek run. Well, it seems the area is becoming a bit of a mess for tit-for-tat murders, but it all seems to start with James Marks murdering two Aboriginal people. Did this ever end? In the next episode, we'll discuss Bly's attempt to bring justice to the area. Following that, to maintain real order, Frederick Walker and the native police were sent to the McIntyre. Walker's force was a group of Aboriginals from the Murray River area. They arrived on the McIntyre on the 10th of May 1849. But one person relevant to this story was murdered just before Walker arrived. This murder is described in a newspaper report of 9 May 1849. A constable has just come in from the McIntyre where they have been lately stationed and informs me that the blacks lately killed five head of cattle belonging to Mr. Jonathan Young and sent him notice that they were preparing another attack. He applied to the constables and some of his neighbours joined him. The party came up with the body of the blacks, but the only one they got near was that notorious one, Gibber, who murdered Mr. Marx's boy some time ago and also Mr. Yeoman's bullock driver. For this man, they had a warrant, and they called to him repeatedly to stand, but he would not, and came in contact with Mr. Marshall, whom he knocked from his horse senseless to the ground with his nulla nulla. He was, of course, quickly dispatched. 
The constable describes him as the most fierce-looking savage he had ever seen, standing full six feet high. On one foot he had no toes, and on the other only two, of a peculiar form like claws. So the final murder, before the arrival of the native police, is that of Gibber. Allegedly, the Aboriginal warrior who took revenge on James Mark for the murder of the two Aboriginal boys and also the murder of Scotchy, the bullock driver. I don't know how they can say Gibber killed those men. Bly had investigated the murder of Mark's son and concluded that no one knew who did it. And we have Pantaloon as the most likely culprit for the murder of Scotchy. Okay. You said earlier that you're a bit curious about the source of the story and about the killing of 40 Aboriginal people in Burnell. What's your concern? This account, which is the only one I can find about the Burnell incident, comes from a document called the Wallabadar Manuscript. This is a really interesting document. It's a long story, but in 1961, the proprietor of Wallabadar Station donated a whole lot of documents to UNE the university around uh, based in Armidale. These documents included a long handwritten history, for want of a better description, of life on the frontier in northern New South Wales. It took a long time to ascertain the author, but it's now known that it was written by William Telfer, Jr., in about 1900. William lived in the Armidale area during the squatter period. So, in one sense... This is very similar to Margaret Young's and Jonathan Watts's journals. However, there are two big differences. Firstly, William had a poor education, so his original handwritten pages contain very poor English, bad spelling and no punctuation, and are hard to read. They have since been transcribed. Secondly, in 1980, the manuscript was published by Roger Millis, and he fact-checked the manuscript wherever possible. Roger concluded that this document is, to use his words, remarkably accurate in the bulk of its detail. However, it's not perfect, and we need to check the veracity of the claim that 40 people were murdered on Burnell. Fair enough, but um, if there's no other report of the Burnell incident, how can we do that? Telfer has a long section talking about the Marx murders, even though he wasn't in the district at the time. We can look at what he says about some of the other incidents that we've talked about so far and see how his story stacks up. Let's start with the murder of James Mark's son. Here is what Telfer says. The blacks had committed a lot of depredations. One of the worst happened to Mr Marks. He had taken up a new station called Gouda on the Weir on Jones River, near the present town of Gundawindi, now Queensland, at that time a portion of New South Wales. He had two flocks of sheep on the station. He and his little son Johnny Marks were shepherding them not far from his residence. He told his son to look after the sheep while he went to the house for a short time. He stopped away for an hour. On his return, he could not see him anywhere. He was sure something had happened as the sheepdog was barking and howling, running towards the scrub. He had two kangaroo dogs with him, 
they went after the sheepdog. Mr. Marks, following armed with a double-barreled gun, cautiously approached the scrub, where he came on traces of blood. Following this trace for about 400 yards, he came to a hollow stump of a tree. The three dogs were at the stump, barking and howling. He knew there was something wrong. Being a man of great courage, he went to the stump and looked in. There was the body of his little son. The boy's head had been severed from the body. A foul murder had been done. There were marks on the body as if done with an eagle's talons. The head was not to be found. The poor grief-stricken parent went to his residence, taking the body with him. That night, the boy's head was placed on the limb of a tree, just in front of the house by the black fiends. <laughs> okay, well, that's sort of similar to the other versions that we have, but the others didn't say the boy was decapitated or that there were marks on the body done by eagle's talons. So do you have anything else? Yes. Here's Telfer's description of the murder of Scotchy, the bullock driver who was removing goods from uh, James Mark Station. Following his description of the Boonal murders, Telfer says, Those blacks are supposed not to be any of the murderers, only a trouble to the squatters further up the river, hunting and spearing their cattle for food and their men being in danger, also killing a bullock driver of Mr Mark, going down country with a load of wool. This murder happened in the vicinity of Wollangra. The man was after his bullocks in the morning when the blacks waylaid him in a scrub, bearing him through the body. He went by the name of Scotchy, coming from Scotland. They stuck his body in the middle of the road with ten spears in it, also spearing some of the working bullocks, roasting and eating them, also burning the dray with the load of wool. Now this section is riddled with errors. The murder of Scotchy happened near Gouda, not at Wallangara. The wagon was carrying Marx's house goods, not wool, and no one mentioned the bullocks being roasted. Scotchy's body wasn't stuck in the middle of the middle of the road with spears. But here is an even more erroneous section. Soon after the section on the murder of Scotchy, Telfer says. Marx was about six months shooting them before he found the murderer of his son. There was a tame black fellow from the Namoi River living on a station 25 miles from there. Heard some of the other blacks talking in the camp about a black fellow that had committed the murder of the boy. So he found out his name through being able to talk their language and went to the overseer telling him about it who at once went to Mr. Mark's station with the news. They organised a party to go after him, Mr. Mark's in command. They were after him three weeks, having the Namoy blackfellow tracking him, which was not a very difficult job in the sandy ground, as he had a very peculiar foot, having six toes on each foot, the toenails like claws, also six fingers on each hand. They said his fingernails were like eagle's talons, 
the most repulsive Aboriginal that was ever seen in Australia, standing six feet four inches in height. After a long hunt, they came on this camp on a creek on the upper Mooney. Mr. Marks in the lead saw him making a way, fired, putting a bullet through his body when he fell dying in a short time. This was the end of the Black Fiend, whose name was Gabar, in their language, Devil. The murder was done alone by the savage. By the description of the Aboriginal man who was killed, this has to be Gibber. There's many errors here. The newspaper report at the time says that Gibber was killed in May 1849, not six months after the murder of Mark's son. Gibber wasn't killed in the Upper Mooney. He was killed near Gouda. In that same newspaper report, there is no mention of a tame blackfellow from the Namoi. And certainly, James Mark cannot have been involved in the killing of Gibber, as he'd left the district by that time, by the time that Gibber was, if we remember, quickly dispatched. The only similarity in the stories is the description of Gibber. Now he somehow has fingernails like eagle's talons. So, this is a bit curious. Taking that in mind, this is how Telfer describes the murders on Boonal. After burying his son, he went and got his saddle horse, taking ammunition and firearms, went in pursuit of the murderers. He was joined by several others who had an account to settle with the blacks. The first attack they made was at Boonal on about 40 blacks encamped in a bend of the river. At night they were shot down and burned on their campfires, being taken unawares. Those blacks are supposed not to be any of the murderers, only a trouble to the squatters further up the river, hunting and spearing their cattle for food and their men being in danger. Also, killing a bullock driver of Mr. Mark's going down country with a load of wool. I can understand why you're curious about the veracity of this section. Given the detail he has on the killings of Mark's son and the killing of Gibber, this description of the murder of 40 people seems a bit light on. Yeah, I'm quite uh, suspicious about the detail of the Bernal event. Telfer is writing his manuscript many years after the event, like Margaret Young did. We know that both of them have made errors when compared to contemporaneous reports. One big issue that I have, though, with the Boonal story is that the MO of the gang appears to be quite different from the other murders. In all the other cases we've found, Tinker on Minami, Isabel, her son and friend on Calendoon, Botha and Mary on Umbercolly, and the four killed on Canning Creek, The gang attacks individuals or small groups of defenceless women on stations. Not a large group of 40-plus encamped in the bed of a river. This sounds like a whole clan and would include warriors rather than defenceless women and children. I haven't seen any evidence that Mark's gang would take on a large group of warriors. Another issue I have is the lack of detail. In Telfer's other accounts, he's got lots of detail. Mark's son was decapitated. Scotchy's body was stuck with spears in the middle of the road. 
Gibber had six toes on each foot. But there is no detail in the Boonal Massacre story. Finally, Telfer is the only person who tells this story. I would have thought, if 40 people were killed, somebody somewhere would have mentioned the event. Yeah, I agree. There are good reasons to question the Boonal Massacre as told by Telfer. Uh, It would be really good to find some corroboration of the story. But how does this affect our story? Does it really matter how many, the exact number of people, Aboriginal people that Marks and his gang murdered? That's an important question. But I don't think the exact number does matter or will ever be known. We found good evidence that the Marks gang killed at least 10 people. In this modern day world, Mark and his gang could be described as mass murderers. Their culpability is no different if we talk about 10 murders or 50, if we include the Boonal event. Yeah, well, when you look at it like that, the exact number doesn't change how we should regard James Mark. Is there anything else we can say about his final tally? I think we must remember one of the outcomes of the Mile Creek Massacre and Trial, the conspiracy of silence amongst the squatters. We know that the killing of Aboriginal people did not end after that trial. The Marx murders are ample evidence of that. But there was an understanding amongst the squatters and their workers to keep these events quiet. We have lots of hints throughout our episodes that this happened in the McIntyre. What sort of hints do you mean? Well, for example, in episode three, A Tale of Two Squatters, it seems clear that Captain Scott's men used muskets on the Aboriginal people there and presumably killed some in revenge for the killing of Heartkeeper on Bengala. But I've never seen the Bengala story in any newspaper or official report. Then, Margaret Young described James Mark as a hater of all Aboriginals and would shoot any scene approaching his property. And later she says that he went all over the district asking all hands to join his gang shooting every native on sight. I think that Margaret is describing more events than just the killing of Botha and Mary on Umbercolly. Yeah, well, Margaret uh, certainly hints at Marx's activity being more widespread than just Umbercolly. Do you have anything else? Yes. In following episodes, we will talk about Frederick Walker and the native police who came to the McIntyre to establish law and order. In 1853, Walker was criticised in a letter to the Morton Bay Courier. Walker referred to the author of this letter, who he believed to be James Mark, in a letter that Walker wrote to the Colonial Secretary. When talking about James Mark, Walker wrote, An individual whose atrocities on the McIntyre first induced His Excellency to command me to raise the native police. Does Frederick Walker know of more atrocities than just the ten murders we found? Well, you'd have to think that unofficially might have had a better idea, and certainly his record-keeping was intentionally quite suspect. Yes, but I think the existence of this conspiracy of silence is evident in a newspaper article that I found. It's in the Morton Bay Courier in December 1848. The article is talking about the mayhem on the McIntyre in the previous 15 months, that is, back to about the time of the murder of the hutkeeper by Tinker. The article says, Within that time, no less than seven whites have been murdered by the blacks. 
First, there were two men killed on the road, then Mark's boy, then two men of Mr Perrier's, then Jemmy the jockey on Whiteman Station, and just lately, a bullock driver in the employ of Mrs Baldwin and Yeomans while removing the stores and other property from the deserted Mark Station. Now, we are aware of most, but not all, of the murders of the Europeans mentioned here. But with regard to the Aboriginal people, the article says, There is no such record that had been of the blacks who had been killed by the whites during that period. But we may rest assured that at least life for life has been extracted and something more. Yeah, I like that. No uh, record. Uh, what does that mean? Um, in other words, everyone knows that there have been many deaths of Aboriginal people, but the conspiracy of silence will prevent us from ever knowing the complete truth. And this brings us back to the Boonal incident. Telfer recounts the stories of the murders of Mark's son, Scotchy the bullock driver, and Gibber, even though that's riddled with errors. Telfer almost certainly heard about some event on the McIntyre, and his story of the Boonal incident probably has more than a kernel of truth hidden in there somewhere. So, the true number that Mark's gang killed between August 1847 and May 1849 when Frederick Walker and the Native Police arrived will probably never be known. Yeah, we'll probably never know the full story, but why wasn't he stopped? We've said that the magistrate from Warrialda, Commissioner Bly, had been to the air and taken depositions, so Bly knew who was responsible. What happened there? And after all, in the second episode, we discussed the Mile Creek Massacre, where Europeans were charged, convicted and hanged following the murder of Aboriginal people. Did that happen here? Yes and no. I previously noted that Commissioner Bly conducted a coroner's inquest into the murder of Mark's son and took depositions about the murder of Botha. This led to legal action starting and charges were being laid. But that's a long story for the next episode. OK, well, we'd like your views on this topic. Do you have a similar story in your family tree? If so, please contact us on our email or comment on our Facebook page. Contact details are on our webpage, www.todaysstories.com.au. Full details of this story are available on our website and please remember to subscribe to our podcast. For this podcast, your hosts were Greg and Peter, researched by Peter. Voice actors were Mark, Denise and Mick. Original music and sound engineering by Pete Hill. IT solutions by Shelley. Thank you for listening.